Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Zach, and we can, uh, so Dr. Plus, can you just... I was reading a little about your bio. I got excited, man, because I used to live in New Zealand. I, I, I lived in the Waikato. Um, I, oh, nice. I, yeah, I used to play rugby in, in Hautapu, which is, uh, you know, as you know, well, I don't know. I don't know where you're at in New Zealand, but uh, uh, that's, you know, in Cambridge, which is, you know, kind of right in that rowing territory. I think Lake Karapiro is, is not far from there. So I, I'm familiar with at least some aspect of that stuff. And then I've been rowing as, a, as an indoor guy for a couple of years now. Right, okay. Yeah, so you, you obviously know that I worked for the New Zealand rowing team. Yeah, for, I saw that. I thought that was cool. With, you know, with did you? I know there's a guy named Rob Waddell who might have been before your time, but I know he was, uh, you know, the concert two world record and gold medalist. Yeah, he played yeah. Rugby. So my time was, um, so my time there was more Mahe Drysdale. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's double Olympic gold medalist in right, the singles, right, schools yeah. and, and the um, and the men's pair. Yeah, Eric, um, and, uh, Eric, Eric and Hamish, Hamish yeah. Bond. Yeah, those guys are yeah. just setting the world on fire. I think Hamish is still crushing some concert two records. I think I signed to set up. Yeah, so, so yeah, interesting story with um, with Hamish. So he actually made the transfer to time trialing cycling as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he did that, I actually coached him to that transition. So we, we kind of he left rowing and he went to do cycling. And he went to the Commonwealth Games, got bronze medal in the time trial in the Commonwealth Games decided that it wasn't for him the um if, well he didn't decide it wasn't for him but i think he realized that he couldn't be as good of cyclist as he was a rower so he now he's gone back to back to rowing and is trying to get into the men's eight so. yeah i mean it's, it's pretty interesting that i mean well i mean obviously he he reached the pinnacle of success in rowing i mean there's not yeah. much better you can get as a rower than to, to try to do, do the another sport but I mean, because with rowing, you know, you've got a lot more upper body mass. And with cycling, I don't know what, cy- what type of cycling he was doing, but that's usually the guys tend to lose a lot of upper body mass. And it's all, you know, have to redistribute their, their muscle mass for that. So that's kind of interesting. So Yeah, and, and he really did. He, he absolutely, he, all of his upper body pretty much disappeared, but it came back. And it's, yeah. it's quite funny. I would say since he's come back, his body shape's changed. I would say he's, he's definitely not as lean as he was as a rower before. I, I mean, I'm not... I've only seen pictures, so I can't, I'm not one to comment on exact, the exact data, but it, it seems that way. And I think maybe some, he probably didn't uh, get rid of the weight from, to be a cyclist in the smartest of ways, probably you know, a little bit too much calorie restriction and stuff. And I think it's maybe <laughs> now he's gone back to kind of eating the normal way, he's just come straight back on. So, but there's obviously, there's not just um, that upper body muscle, like the back and the lower back and all those that muscle that's mm. it's a massive part of the rowing so yeah is he uh how old is he now he'll be he's just had two kids i think he's about maybe 34 33 so he's still yeah. within rowing because my was doing this you know as a single guy and it was 40s i mean and so he was still rowing at a very high level so i mean yeah so my my turned 40 last year yeah. um and he he was he's obviously he's, he's struggling a bit at the moment when I say this just through following the news, because I don't really have anything to do with the rowing team anymore. 
Um, yeah, but he's trying to get back to the Olympics for the yeah for the. If they have the Olympics, I don't know. I don't know if yeah, the Olympics are. Yeah, well, they will have the Olympics. It's just going to be later. Yeah, one, yeah. So now, now my um my work in that space work is in women's kayak. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so women's kayak. We've New Zealand. They're pretty good at women's kayak. We got um like we got bronze, gold. But Lisa Carrington is double Olympic gold medalist in the women's two hundred. So they we're. The, actually, the in the world championships last year were the top women's nation for women's kayak. So, yeah, so that's I mean, pretty cool. I, I, you know, when I lived in New Zealand, I was back in 90, 91, 92, and I was playing rugby out there. I mean, I was just amazed, you know, because, you know, obviously a relatively small country, but just proportionally, just a huge number of athletic uh, accomplishments for, you know, obviously the All Blacks with rugby and the rowing yeah. team, the sailing teams and triathlon yeah. and so you've got a really just tremendous mm-hmm. sporting mentality and 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 a good uh you know obviously scientific physiology department that that helps to to make those athletes yeah. successful yeah. i definitely like think so i mean i'm not originally i'm not originally a new kiwi i've actually spent 10 years living here um a couple of weeks back um but i think you know everyone knows that new zealand is for a small population they're amazing at, at sport so and you mentioned the sailing the other part of my job is i'm the um, head of physical performance for emirates team new zealand so um I, i'm head of the, the all the grinders that are on the america's cup boats yeah that's what and rob oh, waddell cool. rob waddell yeah. the guy's talking i think he went and did grinding as well he, he did working. exactly yeah so that's how i i know of, i know rob anyway because we've met a few times because we've met on various projects so when when i was working in rowing and then since then obviously i'm now with Emirates team New Zealand and he was he was part of that so there's some there's some big strong so they're big strong guys though the grinders like 100 kgs and some of the power that they can produce with their arms is mind-blowing so that's been that's been quite fun because have this background in triathlon and cycling you have a background in kayak and it's like grinding is kind of this mirage of cycling and kayak that's quite um cool thing to be involved in so yeah, that's funny. Yeah, because Rob played on the same rugby team that I played for this team called Hautapu in, in Waikato. I think Rob right, played okay. on the exact same team as me a few years later or many years, maybe a decade later or something. So that's yeah. pretty interesting. And then I, as a rower, I, I was, you know, I, I'd set a world record for the just a 500-meter distance. I pulled a 114 at age 50 and, and broke the world record on that. But, uh, right, wow. So I've been on that damn machine for about seven, eight years now, and I'm still – you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely yeah. a love-hate relationship. I just did a 5K this morning after. So, um, and, uh, so one of our grinders at the moment, who I'm now back working with, is Joe Sullivan, who won gold medal in the men's double in London. Um, I don't know if you watched that race. So, yeah, he's he's one of our grinders now. So that's you know, it's amazing how things come full circle. You know, I was worked with him, at, at helping him in um, in rowing, and now he's come back and working with him in Emirates Team New Zealand. So. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it seems like a fun thing. I just sorry, Zach. I saw I was in Hawaii. Uh, I don't know, six months ago, and we went out for a lecture. We did some lectures out there, and a guy had one of these grinding, simulating machines in his garage. You know, it's kind of what. <laughs> and I was playing with that, and that was just a lot of fun. You know, I think it looked like it looks like a fun. fun yeah, I, I don't know how long they go. I know they kind of they kind of take turns, and they go as hard as they can for. Yeah, well, well, in, you know, you have, you have backwards grinders, forwards grinders, and I mean, there's a, they're on for the entire duration of the event, but it's very, very stochastic in its nature. So like, I kind of compare it to a cycling criterion, if you're familiar with those, is that you've got periods of really high, intense effort sprinting out of corners. Um, so that would be sprinting, you know, into a maneuver, if you're doing a tack or a jive or whatever that will be, and then it's kind of more sustained. So they have to be quite, have good endurance because they have to recover between high intensity, like 30 second bouts. Um, but they also have to be able to produce a 
high amount of power in a very short period of time. So people like you and me, Zach, would, would be, are absolutely hopeless on grinding machines. <laughs> no, I, it sounds like something I'd be hopeless on. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm hopeless at it and I, I swim a bit, so you're probably more hopeless than me. <laughs> no doubt. Well, it is funny because uh, one of the reasons Sean and I partnered up for this podcast originally is because we had such stark differences in athletic endeavors. Mm. Uh, him being kind of a short burst athlete and, and me, me kind of running all day sometimes. And, yeah. but, but recently Sean's been teasing a little more endurance. So I think we have a little more commonality now. Yeah, but right. yeah. It is yeah. funny though, uh, Dan, when I, when I first kind of like discovered your work and kind of what you were up to, uh, we had actually had uh, Dr. Mark Bubbs on the show. And this was probably last summer at this point. And he had just finished his book peak where he was diving into like some of the stuff that he had, he did, he did a pretty good job with that book. I think where he kind of outlined just like, here's where sports nutrition has been historically. This is some of the stuff that's kind of been coming up and what we would love to see some more stuff in. And when you got to kind of the, the side of things where they were talking about low carb approaches to training and racing and sports. He had referenced you and I think it was uh, Dr. Larson, I believe some of the yeah, work you guys yeah. have done. Yep. So, yeah, so then I was really interested in what, what you were up to as well as Dr. Larson. And uh, not that long after that, I think Leighton from S fuels had reached out to me and asked about doing some collaboration stuff with them. And mm-hmm. he had said that you and Dave Scott were on board with you, with them already. So I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. It'd be co- really cool to connect. So mm-hmm. um, long story short, here we are connected. Yeah. Small, <laughs> small world, isn't it? Everything yeah. um, small world, how these things seem to just get intertwined and connect eventually. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I remember first hearing about you and I got, I got a feed of your world record, obviously. I think that's how you first jumped into, uh, into my um, atmosphere. So yeah, I mean, awesome. And then the Joe Rogan podcast. I mean, that's big time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rogan, it is funny. I'll get, uh, I'll get people reaching out to me about the whenever I did the first time I went on his show, which is over two years ago at this point. But yeah, he's got a, a pretty big net for sure. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I always know. Think- I know when I, think, I was on Rogan's show, I, I, you know, cause I didn't, I didn't really even know much about him. You know, he just kind of said, Hey, do you want to come on the podcast? And I said, Hey, I'm sure. Okay. I'll drive up there. Cause I don't live far from where his thing is. And so now I realize it was a bigger, bigger deal. And so yeah. I'd be in, I, well, I, I think I'll go back on later this year to talk about some stuff that once we get this data in, so it'll be another. Yeah. Well, he, he's just finished the carnivore diet, right? And he had, he got amazingly ripped up and the yeah, yeah, Joe, I mean, he'd been teasing it like last year. He was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. He totally sent me a thing. And then he ended up, I guess, not doing it for whatever reason. And then I think he had enough people that kind of gave him, you know, like when he had like Pavel Satsaline on there saying, Hey, I think vegetables are a necessary evil. They may not be that good or hormetic only. And you're like, you can get hormesis through a whole host of things, exercise, fasting, heat, you know, sauna, all these different yeah. hormetic stressors. And so he did it, you know, and he got a good result. And I think he's mostly there now. And it's kind of funny. Most people end up doing it. They end up saying, you know, mostly carnivore. And I think that's fine for, for a lot yeah. of those people. That's, I, I try not to be too dogmatic about it. I tell people, you know, it, it, it can work very well for an elimination diet and uh, yeah. it can, it can help to sort of reset some things. And a lot of people, this is the thing, and I, you know, I mean, you know, because I know there's a lot of controversy around low carb diets and athletic performance, and usually a lot of the studies look at ketogenic diets. You know, there's a lot of sort of thought on fat adaptation, and you know, they they end up being you know three week, you know, three or four week studies because that's all the funding will allow, and there's an adaptation period, and people talk about well, maybe they need longer periods of time. And Zach and I have postulated, you know, hey, maybe because of the ketogenic diet tends to to sort of 
diminish the significance of protein. And sometimes they, they, they artificially, well, not artificially, they intentionally lower it to a degree where I think it's problematic. And I think a carnivore diet, which probably, you know, allows for better glycogen restoration via gluconeogenesis or a higher, you know, protein content in the diet. We know that happens in animal studies. They upregulate their gluconeogenesis. You know, guys like Don Lehman, who's huge in the protein world talking about some of the data on that. And so I, I've, I found that like for me personally, I can do the high output glycolytic stuff without any problem. You know, particularly if it's a one workout a day, I've got no issues whatsoever with that. Uh, and at the same time, I, I, you know, while I'm not doing hundred mile races or rowing for four hours a day, I mean, I can still do two hour, three hour training sessions if I want to, you know, mm. and, and I don't struggle with, I, I'd play, you know, touch rugby for two hours running around and you know how that is, mm. I mean, even though you're not playing full contact. I mean, I can, I can still do that even in, even in my fifties. So I think yeah, there's yeah. some advantage there. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, the whole protein side of things. I mean, I, I know Zach's aware that we have an online course of Endure IQ and it's basically, it's, we've got two courses, but one is kind of low carb, hydrate performance. And we, you know, we taught people how to get through, how to become fat adapted and then how to race, how to taper in the context of, low, of long distance triathlon, at least. And one of the main things that we, I put, I make very clear is that I think the biggest mistake athletes make of going into the ketogenic diet is this carb protein restriction at the same time. That's what is the biggest unfolding of athletes trying to go low carb. And, um, and, and like my, my advice is I think you just it almost overcomplicates things. And even in, the, even in that kind of research, like, like gluconeogenesis and ketogenic diets, it's all done in um, epileptic, epileptic studies as well. So, you know, most people aren't as severe or in that requirement so that you just don't really need to re restrict it and i don't know if you were if you're aware of a paper that was um, published by gillian um the canadian group who didn't look at ketogenic diets but they looked at carbohydrate restriction around training and you know the the big take home from that was if you are carbohydrate restricting you need more protein not less protein you know so yeah, I think that came out last year, didn't it? Late last year yeah, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I remember seeing that. I think maybe Stu Phillips or somebody referenced that, and I, I, I yeah. read through that. And that's, you know, and that was within, that was in, in the context of endurance athletes, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was. So, yeah. so it wasn't a, a strict carbohydrate lowering diet, but it was a carbohydrate restricted. So basically, they had the same carbohydrate during the day, but basically they had, you know, a kind of a depleting bout of exercise and then had no carbohydrates for the rest of the day, sort of thing. So similar kind of concept, but I think. But for me, that's what I've seen time and time again in the athletic communities that I've worked with is that if you, you, you have all this context of gluconeogenesis and people are so afraid of not being in ketosis for some reason that they end up thinking they have to restrict the protein at the same time. And then, and then it's just catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, particularly for athletes. And that's a, that's a misconception. We've talked about it. I know Jack and I, we've talked about it. And we've had guests on. We've had Jose Antonio, Don Lehman, Stu Phillips and others you know, that are big in the world of protein research. Yeah, talking about that endurance athletes and, and most many people be surprised that have a, a higher protein demand than, than weight trainers because of the you know yeah, just right, the yeah. chronic amount of beating their body's taking and all the, the sort of the, the catabolisms going on on these endurance runs these 20 mile runs you know two three hour training sessions that yeah, a lot of i can guys believe it well, i mean Stu phillips is you know he's the man in terms yeah. of protein and uh and endurance and sport in general so yeah, and I know that he's always trying to push the daily guide, the guidelines for athletes a bit higher. And I would have to, I'd have to agree with him. And I do think it even becomes higher when you're, you know, when you are in, I mean, when you're just low carb in general. And any athlete who's training 25, you know, doing these crazy 25, 30 hour weeks, 
they're going to be glycogen depleted continuously anyway. Um, so you know, those, those protein requirements are much higher than people realize. What do you think? I mean, what do you think? I mean, because you're dealing with these, these Olympic caliber athletes, these guys, you know, these Eric Murray's, these Hamish Bonds, you know, Mahi Drysdale's that are just, I mean, I, I know their training is, you know, probably four hours a day, some days, maybe more. I mean, what, what are they doing? I mean, what do they need? I mean, what are you, what are you guys prescribing for protein or is that, is that proprietary information? Yeah. I mean, knows? <laughs> yeah, it's a, um, no, I mean, I can talk about that because it's actually a bit of a controversial area. I mean, I know when I, I mean, I don't work for the, at the time I was working for high performance sport in New Zealand and now I don't work for them. I work for kite, but I'm, um, I'm contracted to them. And it was always a bit of a contentious area between physiology. So it was me and Paul Lawson who were there, there at the time and nutrition because the nutrition team, there were very much still in the old dogma of like 600, 700 grams, white bread and honey after training. Uh, you know, it's just, just ridiculous. So the, it, they were very, very much a carbohydrate dependent, um, you know, diet. Like you're coming, they're coming from racing and, you know, six, six, you know, six minute race, seven minute race, you're using about, you know, 100 grams of carbs, if that, not even that. Um, it's probably more like 50 grams of carbs and they'd come in and they'd have like bread and bread and honey and jelly, jelly sweets and, you know, gels, the whole lot. They'd consume about 500 grams of carbohydrates in the space of about an hour. Um, so, you know, it was very much in that old, old, old kind of adage. Um, so no, they didn't really have that high pr protein. They, they would have had a high protein purely because of the amount of food they ate generally. Like you're talking mountains of food, like Mahe, Drysdale, I've never seen anyone eat so much food as, as that man. So by default, he would have had huge amounts of um, proteins, but um, I don't think it was a intentious thing to make sure that it was high. Um, it's a funny, it's a funny thing, Zach, you know, because, you know, as endurance athletes, you know, you, you kind of, it's always restrict, restrict, restrict a little bit. You know, you're always like, you're always a bit more conscious about what you're eating because you think you want to be, you know, keep it tight, be a bit leaner. But the rowing is just, you know, it's just not a, a thing. It's not a weight dependent sport. And it's just, it's a lot of food. Like yeah. you go, we went away on tour for, you know, so we would leave, you know, in May, May time and we'd get back in September on the European tour doing the circuits. And I would love to, you know, 50 odd rowers, and staff and you'd i'd love to know the amount of food that would be consumed over that period but it would be enough to feed a state <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm sure you're aware like you know steve redgrave you know sir stephen redgrave the, the five-time olympic yeah, you know, yeah guy from great britain you know he was diabetic yeah uh, despite i mean what would obviously be a massive amount of of training and and so yeah. i mean I, you wonder if he pursued this huge high carbohydrate and just even despite all of his training out ate his requirements. I mean, I think, yeah, that's, I, I think that's what's I, happening. Yeah, I definitely believe it. And if you look at, you know, the, if you look at most rowers, they're not, they're not super lean. A lot of them, um, you know, so I think that is, that is the case. They are probably out overeating and Steve Redgrave's a prime example. You know, he would be someone who is having a huge amount of glucose disposal, but yet he's still, having these issues later on. I also think in rowing there's, and there's something that I tried to change in my period there is, you know, that, that no pain, no gain attitude of it has to be hard all the time. And I don't think, and I think I changed that during the period of my time at rowing New Zealand. I made them realize, that, you know, easy, easy things can be easy and hard things should be hard. But I think, you know, if you're permanently doing your easy things a little bit too hard, I don't think it's as um, great for, 
like glucose disposal generally as well, because you're obviously spilling out more glucose into the blood, breaking down more glycogen. You're not really in that optimal zone for um, longevity as an athlete. Um, and I think that's something that's often missed. Yeah, I think that's, that's part of the discussion that I think a lot of people overlook because I mean, they talk about, you know, they, 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 you know, you see the research where they're like, they'll look at low carb athletes and they'll do, you know, like uh, max wattage tests, you know, on, on, you know, cycling. And a lot of these cycling tests are done where they do wind gate tests or something like that, or they'll do a time to exhaustion type test. And it's, you know, usually this, you know, three week adaptation period. And they'll, they'll usually show the guys who are getting carbs will have a benefit typically in the short term. But as Zach will point out, as you know, anybody that's been around this stuff for a long period of time, the performance at the Olympics, which occurs once every four years, is a, is a performance that, that takes years to, you know, sometimes it's a decade of training. And, you know, if you're beating yourself up, if you're not recovering, and I know, I know Zach was part of a study where they looked at reactive oxygen species after, uh, you know, long distance running and comparing low carb versus high carb, and they saw low carb guys, this seemed to have less oxidative stress put on their body and that may lead to better recovery if you're not so beat up and so you can kind of continuously and i don't know what the rowing you know if the rowing guys are all every day they're going out there they're sore when they're training and it's like every day you start out sore mm. versus you know maybe you're not sore when you train i don't, I don't know if that, yeah that, yeah that comes into play. It, it's funny we just um uh, we just actually published the paper that looked at like some inflammatory markers um with ketogenic diets but we, we didn't, and we did that because I was pretty convinced that there would be some of those inflammatory markers would be improved with lower carbohydrate diets. But unfortunately, we didn't really see it as an effect. We did see that the, the hormones for satiation were a lot higher, but we didn't see that. But for certainly from my perspective, you know, having trained myself, you know, in a low carb state and made that adaptation, one of the main differences I find is my recoverability between training and my ability to back up hard sessions day in day out i mean i can i mean i think i've got a way of being a good amateur because i can still work and train um you know i have minimal time to train but i can make sure each one of those sessions is of high quality because i do feel my recovery if recoverability is a word um is quite good yeah it is interesting because i think like you know i i I, when i first switched to a high fat low carb diet that was one of the first things i noticed when I would do those big sessions and races was my range of motion and kind of, I guess, mobility post big session that following mm-hmm. day. And uh, another guy in this sport, Jeff Browning, who uh, he's such an interesting guy because he's almost 50 years old now and he's still just kind of crushing it in the ultra trail world. And he got into it a little bit after me and he had already had, I think like 1600 miles under his belt. And he said he went and did this uh, race in Hawaii, the Hurt 100, just a gnarly mountain course with wet roots. And, you know, it's one of those that you're going to invest a whole day in doing, even if you're going to win the thing. And he couldn't believe how, how, how flexible he was the next day after. He's like, normally I'm waddling downstairs and can't even bend my knees. And then he's like, I can do air squats the next day. You know, wow, amazing. And it's weird. It's like, you know, those are, I guess, anecdotes and maybe not backed up mm-hmm. by research but something's going on there and i suspect is more than just a placebo effect because if it's a placebo effect i'm running a, a nine-year placebo effect at this point and yeah. um you know that gets kind of like it gets it gets yeah. hairy though because folks want to see that tangible on paper like this is what's yeah exactly you know and you know it's, it's it's funny how you know as you know you get when you're an academic and you're kind of doing it yourself and you're researching you you, you the what you feel yourself often guides your research question because you're like you know you're convinced but yeah, well, I mean, I think more work can be done. I mean, 
we did it we did it in uh it wasn't in athletes either so maybe you know there's more more work to be done in that space for sure yeah what's uh i mean i'm just just curious you know because this is time because we've got this uh at least in the u.s everybody's under quarantine lockdown yeah. coronavirus Same here. are how is it affecting the athletes are they can they train are they what are they what are they what are your kayakers doing are they allowed to get on the water by themselves and socially distance or are they got are they are there some indoor I'm sure there's rowing simulators, kayaking simulators they can use. I mean, how are they? Yeah, that? yeah. So um, at the moment, no one's allowed to go on the water because um, people feel it's a um, you know it's a hazard, and you know if, if someone has to get called out to save them, then it's kind of a risk. So and yeah, they're not allowed to be on the water. So there are kayak ergs um, people can that we get on, but not everyone's got one of those. So it's basically a lot of weights, cross training, cycling, just keeping fit really until. Um, so we know what's going on. So we're in a four-week lockdown period. We're in the final week right now. So we'll see what happens next week. We had the first week they were lenient on allowing people to be out on the water. So I was I could swim in the sea and and whatnot. But now they've kind of clamped down on that. And the, so it's just cross training and in, indoor stuff. Really, you can still you can run outside. You can cycle outside as long as you're within your local community. So, yeah. Well, how do they know if you're in your local community? Exactly. How do they know if you're in your local community? So some people are definitely bending those rules. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess what's the, what's the definition of a local community, North Island or whatever? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's like within the 30K radius, but how, yeah. you know, who knows how far, how far that is. And, uh, well, yeah. you can turn around, I guess, if you got 30K, you can drive around, you can get a decent, yeah. it's a, it's, it's a funny one. Like I think running that's fine. You can live with a 30k. Well, maybe Zach couldn't, but I certainly can. <laughs> I can live with a 30k radius. That's not that's not an issue. But the cycling is a bit of a problem. And it, they, the the reason they have it is obviously because they say it's dangerous. Because you know if you fall off and you crash, you're out. You know you you. It's a it's a, public services will have to pick you up, and it's a strain on them. But cycling within your local community is fine so suddenly you've got all these people who haven't ridden a bike in about 20 years polishing it off pulling it out of the garage and riding around the local community which in my eyes is way more dangerous than a guy who cycles every single day going and riding 100k because you know you're kind of you're kind of a professional right so um so that's kind of a bit a bit weird but um yeah rules are rules i guess I thought when I was looking stuff that you are interested in, I think I saw something about HIT high intensity training. Is that something you you have an interest in? Yeah, I definitely have an interest in it. So um, I think you probably saw that from so Paul Lawson, who Zach mentioned before. So he's my best man at my wedding. He supervised me for my PhD. Good friend of mine. He wrote a book, um, the, the Science and Application of High Intensity Interval Training. And I wrote the chapters. Um, so I co-authored the chapter in triathlon with Paul. And then I wrote the chapter for high-intensity interval training in rowing. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of where my – that's probably what you've seen. And we also did an online course for um, high-intensity interval training in rowing and, and triathlon. So where does it – I mean, it seems a bit controversial. Um, not that it's, it's effective in a lot of ways, but what does it seem to be beneficial for – where does it fall down? I mean, I mean, I, I use it a lot. I do a lot of bike sprints and rowing intervals and, and stuff like that. But my goal is a little bit different. It's not to, to win a 2K or 5K or something like that. So, and, and so um, from, from VO2 max development, from, you know, muscle preservation, I mean, these are some of the things I've heard it's equal to or better than, you know, sort of long, steady distance type stuff. What are your, 
where is it applicable, particularly maybe in the, in the sports you have and for the general athlete? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, what's quite funny about this high-intensity interval training and long, you know, long, slow distance, whatever you call it, they always go up against each other, which is just madness to me. Because no, I mean, Zach will know, and you, you guys, you'll both know that no one just does one or the other. It's a combination of both in your, in your training program. And I certainly follow the kind of the principle that, you know, regardless, most of your training should be at a low intensity with, you know, some of it at a high intensity. And where, you know, you have those polarizing pyramidal, like training intensity distributions around 80% at a low intensity, 20% at a high intensity is generally what you would see in a rowing community. Um, and not much in between at that kind of between aerobic and anaerobic threshold. And if you look at the data, and there's some data coming out of um, Melbourne, Dave Bishop, if you know who Dave Bishop is, he does a lot in the like cellular signaling and he's, he's quite a, kind of close to the Keith Barr work because I know you had him on, him, him on your show. He kind of follows that sort of field. And it seems to be the suggestion that what's happening with the volume of training is it's, it's helping your mitochondrial number more, whereas the high intensity training is more the mitochondrial function. So you're kind of playing off both sides, which is more benefit, which, you know, you can imagine how that looks is that, you know, you one, one side you're building your amount of engines and then the other side you're tuning the engine, which makes obvious why that would be beneficial to overall performance and with that, with, with that one aspect, but also, because of the high intensity, you've got a lot of those other things like lactate transportation, monocarb monocarboxylate, and all the sodium potassium pumps, and all that sort of thing that isn't really tuned into when it comes to, into low intensity stuff. So I think it's um, you have to have both in there, but obviously it comes with the with the problem is that I, I do think that too much of it cannot be that great for your overall recovery, health. You know, a lot of autonomic nervous system stress, a lot of um, glucose appearance as well so you, you do a high intensity interval training your glucose could be high for the rest of the day if you're not if you're not trying to see into it and you're not very metabolically efficient so that's why you kind of have to balance the two and balancing it means that most of your training should be at a low intensity when i say low intensity below the aerobic that first aerobic threshold Dan, when, when you're using that strategy in your training are you separating your high intensity training sessions from some of your I, let, let's put some context in it actually to make it a little more clear. So if you're doing like an Ironman, so something maybe a little closer to what I'm doing from mm. an extreme endurance standpoint, are you doing high intensity training stuff throughout the training process then? Or are you kind of following a program of it's important, but specificity is also kind of key where you'd maybe be putting them earlier in the training plan than say someone who's competing in a sport where they're actually going to hit those intensities on race day. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that is exactly what I do is that the principle of specificity is key. And, and like, if you look at a lot of the polarized research, it's done in cross country skiing, it's done in rowing. And, you know, where does the intensity of that race lie? It, it lies above VO2 max power, right? You are doing it, you know, rowing especially would be above VO2 max power. Most of those events would be 1500, 800 meter running, whatever those might be, four kilometer pursuit cycling. They're all above your VO2 max power. Um, Whereas an event like Ironman Triathlon or an ultra event, like it typically sits somewhere just above the first aerobic threshold normally for most people. So the principle of specificity would come in in that you would be doing more of those kind of race simulation sessions as you're getting closer to the event and you would kind of do the high intensity stuff maybe a little, a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's how I've always kind of structured my training, at least the past few years, where I'll make sure I go into a training block, a, spe- a specific training block for a race with that high, highly developed aerobic uh, system, because that's kind of my foundation. But then early in the training block, I'll be doing like, I, for me, it ends up being about kilometer repeats, but I'm kind of targeting like a three minute time frame for those like real good VO2 max. And then I'll build volume at that intensity. And I, kind of, I usually tabulate it or calculate it throughout the course of the week where I'm targeting a specific amount of volume at that like VO2 max type system and building that up. And then once I kind of get that up to where it's uh, usually uh, I won't go too much higher than say 27, maybe 30 minutes total volume per week before yeah. I move on to start targeting something a little closer to race pace and ultimately just working my way to in kind of one system at a time, as opposed to blending the systems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, do you find any value in blending the systems though, where you, I think a lot of these kind of like hard, easy, hard kind of traditional endurance training protocols, especially at like a, the collegiate level here in the States, you'll see a lot of that where like, you know, Tuesday's interval day where you'll do your kilometer repeats or something like that. And then Thursday's tempo run day where you'll do lactic threshold work and, Saturday you race, Sunday long run, and kind of rinse and repeat. Is uh, is that something that you would advocate at all, even for longer endurance events, or is that something that's a little more kind of in the history books, so to speak? No, I think I do think it still it still has its place. I mean, I'm just thinking of like some of my like my builds to my athletes' Ironmans. I'd you know the problem is is that it depends what you're talking about because I do think that when you're, when you're looking at like really long distances like Ironman or the type of distances that you run, just the pure volume of training makes it really difficult to do certain types of sessions. So if you're doing like a, you know, a 200 mile week or whatever, you imagine throwing eight one Ks on top of that. It's just, it's a ridiculous feat and it's not going to happen. So, but the requirement for you to do that volume is very, 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 very high. Whereas someone who's training for a 1500, you know, they don't need to do that much volume. So they can, they can cross in those sorts of, that sort of training. And, you know, because at the end of the day, you can look at training as this massively complex thing, but it is, it's quite simply a dose response relationship. You know, you, the bigger the training stress, the bigger the deviation from homeostasis, the bigger the response. Um, but like, so if you're, if you're, not training that much and you're limited on time, then I think you can afford to do a little bit of high intensity, a little bit of VO2, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of tempo. Um, but the most important thing is that you, whatever it is, you don't do them back to back to back is that you, you do space them out and you allow your autonomic nervous system to recover in, in between. Um, like when, when I, like for my, for, I'm just thinking like for my Ironman, I would, I would do eight one Ks in the last four weeks before an event, but I wouldn't do any, but that's probably the only time I do um, hard VO2 running um, before. But at the same time, because I'm, I'm fat adapted, that's kind of my, my, the endurance side is my strength. The, the, that side of things isn't. So if I have that on point, I know I'm going well. So it's, it depends on the type of athlete you, you are. If, if you're naturally quite speedy and that's not really a thing you have to worry about, then you may be not having to worry about it in the last four weeks before an event if you're doing really long distances and, you know, you, you, then you can more focus on just doing your kind of your race specific, um, tempo, tempo work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you see value in breaking those sessions? This might be event specific, but like one thing I usually think is interesting when we're looking at some of these like shorter intervals, like kilometer repeats or three minutes or whatever it ends up being 
is you know, when I go back to my college days, we would do that in one session. You know, you'd have like your, your 10 by 800, you sometimes 20 by 400 and that sort of stuff. And that was the kind of, you do that once a week at most. Whereas since I got into ultra marathon running, I've looked at it more as I want to hit that type of volume when I'm doing that system, but to do it all in one session or one day, and maybe this is just because it's not specific to race intensity, whereas it was in college, I'm more inclined to say, do like a four by three minute session on Tuesday and then another four by three minute session on uh, Thursday or Friday and get that overall volume spread out a little more and uh, not necessarily do a workout that's so big that I'm kind of in the tank for three or four days. Yeah. And I think it comes back to what, you know, the, the event that you're training from, which sessions, which sessions are most critical. Like, you know, if you're going to be doing, you know, if you're going to be doing 20 by 400, for example, that's going to probably put you in such a, a place that it's going to take away from a, a race specific session that you're going to do later in the week. So it's maybe spreading them out allows you to still get the overall volume or time at that intensity, but it's not taking away from the most important session. Whereas if you're actually, if you're training for a shorter event, then maybe doing the 20 all in one go is a better thing because it doesn't really matter how you're going to perform in those, in those later sessions. Any good training plan, I think, has a clear path towards where you're going. And on that path, you have to know what are the key performance indicators in terms of, of training. So like um, for when, in the rowing program, you know, we, we had four 1,000s. So I could guarantee you that if a rower could do four 1,000s on the water at 98% of world record speed, they would win a world championships. So the, that four 1,000s has become kind of a critical point and a critical marker of, of how well they're going to do. Like you doing um, a four 1,000s is not going to have very much implication on how well you're going to run a 50-miler, right? But some other session might be. So to give that context in the Ironman space, the triathlon, like four by 40 minutes on the bike is a really great session to know how well you're going to go in an Ironman. Four by three minutes on the bike is not going to give me as much representation. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do a massive session around the three-minute point if it's going to take away from me doing like building towards doing those 440 minutes and i think that's the way you, like you know content and um, context before content is always my way to think about things and you know what what's that session what is the session within the context the con how does a content of the session mix in with the content um so the content of the session mixing with the context of what you're trying to achieve overall this episode of the hpo podcast is brought to you by energy cbd Energy CBD specializes in formulating top-of-the-line THC-free CBD products. Their goal is to give customers transparent products and information in hopes to encourage a healthier and happier way of living. When used correctly, CBD has been shown to treat ailments including anxiety and depression, minimize physical pain and inflammation, and improve restorative sleep. Energy CBD specializes in oral tinctures and topical oil roll-ons using only pure CBD isolate. Tinctures are the most popular way of consuming CBD with just a couple of drops for full body relaxation. Their topical oil roll-ons are great for targeted relief. All handmade in the USA, thoroughly tested and approved by independent laboratories, this process ensures that no shortcuts are taken to achieve the highest quality THC-free CBD products. So visit energycbd.store, that's capital letters N-R-G-C-B-D.store, and for an extra 20% off your entire order, 
throw in the discount code capital E, capital Z, number two, number zero at the checkout. Check on Instagram at energy.cbd and on Facebook at energycbd. Links to all these can be found in the show notes. Now, back to the show. Dan, mm-hmm. I want to let me ask you about uh, lactate because when I was back a few years ago, I was doing some rowing. A lot of people were measuring lactate levels. Is that something that's still practiced? Is it believed to have any utility still, or is that something? And, and the other thing is, in the context of, of low carbohydrate diets, does that make a difference? It seemed like for me, I could train at a higher intensity before I would, you know, hit that discomfort that associated with hydrogen ions dissociating from lactate acid, and 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 so. Is that something that's still a valid measure and you guys utilize it much in, in, in the physiology aspect of your athletes? So, so uh, yes, yes, we do use it. But uh, yes, I mean, lactate's got this whole negative connotation. And I think people have now realized that it's not really a bad thing. In fact, it's, you know, I think I was re- reading somewhere the other day that lactate is the preferred fuel in the human body above ketones and above anything. If lactate's present, it will be used and it can also be used um, in the bra- by the brain. And so it's a, you know, the lactate on its own that you're measuring is not the kind of that acidity. You know, lactate and hydrogen ions, it splits very quickly and left with the hydrogen ion and the molecule and the lactate, which in the, the hydrogen ion is the thing that causes the acidity and the changes in the pH. But yes, we do use it. I mean, we do use it um, in combination when we're looking to try and define training zones, but we'll use it with ventilatory measures as well because it gives you just another another marker to kind of um, make sure you're pinpointing those, that aerobic and that, um, for want of a better term, anaerobic threshold when you're looking to get training zones to prescribe training. And another, we use it in the kayaks because higher lactates is associated with higher anaerobic glycolytic activity. And we actually want high lactate. So if you're, um, if you're doing like a session that might be like four times 300, which is about a minute, we're looking to see those higher lactate values because you can guarantee that there is a very strong relationship between 30 second power or 30 second speed and lactate higher the lactate the faster they're going so um so it's an important thing and you actually want high high lactates you don't want low lactates whereas someone like like an endurance athlete like who does ultras would would very much find it difficult to get a high lactate reading because they just don't have that machinery to, to support that glycolytic activity so yeah we we do use it and and what we do find is that in, you can get suppression of that anaerobic system if you do too much um, endurance training without stimulating the anaerobic system enough. I find that a lot in, in rowers especially is that when they don't focus, because if you think about um, rowing is kind of 80% aerobic, 20% kind of anaerobic in terms of the, the time of the event, you can have people who will stagnate, they do lots and lots of training, but they will stagnate in their 2K performance because they haven't assessed and achieved um, keeping that anaerobic system topped up. So what you get is you get an improvement in the aerobic system, a suppression in the anaerobic system, and the whole the overall power is about the same, whereas you need to stimulate them both at the same time. So um, the aerobic system is a lot more malleable than the anaerobic system in terms of changes in training. So that's why most people focus on that in training because it is easier to move, but you don't want to move that without, while suppressing the anaerobic system, you want to move, you want to keep it the same whilst moving the aerobic. So the whole thing kind of shifts up. What's the difference between the physiology and the, and the, the sort of the abilities of a kayaker versus a rower? I mean, it seems like the kayakers tend to be a little bit stronger. Is that, is that fair to say, or what's, what's been your observation? 
<laughs> oh, but I mean, yeah. The um, obviously rowing's more like dominant, whereas kayak is pretty much very, very arm dominant. So, I mean, if you transfer it to the gym, you can, you know, um, squats and deadlifts very highly correlated with performance on on the rowing machine. You know, um, sprinting especially. Um, whereas in kayak, it's bench pull, bench press, very strongly correlated with performance on the water. But the, the relationships aren't as strong. So you can, like the best kayakers, you know, have be, over 30 seconds. So I'm talking about 200 meters and 500 meters, so quite short distances. Um, the way that they perform in the gym will relate very strongly to how they perform in the water, but there's not always that strong correlation in rowing. So Mahe, Eric Murray, um, Hamish Bond were definitely not the strongest rowers in the New Zealand rowing program. In fact, they were probably one of the weakest rowers in the rowing program, but they were still the best. So it's not, the relationship isn't as strong. Whereas in kayak, our strongest kayaker is our fastest kayaker. Whereas it's not always the case in rowing. Is that purely a function of the distance you think? Because I mean, yes, I, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. 100%. And it comes down to the glycolytic activity and the energy systems being used. You know, talking like what 200 meters is pretty much 40 seconds of work, right? Which is pretty much 100%, um, very, very little anaerobic, um, aerobic contribution in terms of in terms of that event. So. Yeah, you mentioned earlier uh, one of the problems you got in you saw with hit training is you know this uh, you know this huge glucose output, maybe you know hepatic you know, uh, glycogenolysis or I, don't know, I think maybe too slow for gluconeogenesis, but how do you manage that in, say, a, a kayaker who's probably going to be rowing in that sort of intense range more frequently? How do you prevent those problems with sort of too much glucose floating around? Well, I, I think you approach it in the same way. Like everyone, you know, recovery in terms of in terms of what in terms of that is pretty much the same. It's just that they would. Yeah, we, I mean, we generally will always have a day between those sorts of those sorts of like high intensity efforts. Um, but yeah, they have to do it, and you know, the, the recovery for them would probably be a little bit longer than a really aerobic athlete because you know, basically, if you if you did a line between lactate and glucose, that'd be pretty much the same. You know, if you're you're high lactate, you're also going to have very high levels of glucose as well. So, um, and a, a sprint athlete will have high levels of lactate compared to an aerobic athlete. So maybe they do need a little bit more time to. Um, to do to recover but at the same time you know they're not doing crazy amounts of volume generally so a big week for them would be like 15 hours so it's not like they're having to do 20 25 hours a week anyway so it's kind of i think you generally find there's this kind of sweet spot where you know those shorter distance events where they're required to do higher outputs of in terms of short duration bursts um they will do generally do lower lower volumes of training anyway so so it kind of works out. Are you active in any research currently, or are you are you doing mostly just on the performance side? No, I'm still um I'm still a researcher at AUT University. So I've got two PhD students at the moment. Um, I'm good, a few very various projects on the side. So one of my PhD students um, is looking at pre-exercise feeding and training adaptation. So basically, what's the adaptive responses of your fasted eat just protein or eat just carb carbohydrates and looking at, you know, what's the acute response to that session. And then what is the chronic response in terms of training adaptation? 
And then the other one is looking at um, subject metabolism and the heat. So what happens to your subject metabolism when you're exercising in temperate and hot conditions? And then also a bit of a training study based on that. So, yeah. Is there anything, you know, I mean, in the, in the last couple of years, new, new, new information has come out that's sort of paradigm changing or potentially paradigm changing that, that you're aware of? Um, I guess it, it'll be, it's, I think what my PhD, one, what my PhD student is doing at the moment with that pre-exercise feeding and training adaptation, you will be, people think that that's kind of a known area, but like the research is just not there in, in athletes. There's been a lot done in, um, non-athletes and obese people, but there's never been very much done in, in, in athletes. So I think that's going to be a really key question. And, um, we've just finished a survey to, um, to kind of understand why people do fasted training or why they don't eat before training. And it's like 50, 50 is that the reasons people don't eat before training is because they think it's better for the training adaptation. And the reason that people do eat before training is because they believe it's better for the training adaptation. So, like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a really interesting, I think that's going to be a really interesting area. And the other thing is, um, I mean, obviously the low carb diet has been a game changer from my perspective and certainly lots of the athletes that I coach. Um, and the, yeah, so they're, they're the main things really, but I didn't think anything's things always evolve. It's just like um, just the evolution of the same thing, you know, newer things that are getting slightly um, tweaked and refined over time, I guess. Do you think we're going to see some world or Olympic champions uh, utilizing a low carbohydrate diet in, in some of the sports you're, you're involved with? Um, I would be surprised if that is the, the case uh, purely because I think um, I'm, I still sit on the fence as to whether I, I really believe that the low carb diet is an absolute game changer for performance in terms of ultra endurance, but I'm not sure it's going to make any difference. I'm not sure it's going to be worse either, but I'm not sure if it's going to make any difference in terms of that, the, the shorter intensity um, kind of stuff. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, whether pe I don't think people have the right guidance to make the change effectively within sporting and Olympic institutions like national federations at the moment. So I think someone would need to be in there who has good um, knowledge in that area to really guide someone to make that change fully. And I don't believe that that's really the case. Yeah, I've always thought like in order for that to happen, you'd almost have to have an athlete who is like very determined to stay in the sport and have their high carb approach just kind of backfire on them personally. And then at mm. the individual level kind of start rebuilding because they have no other choice to do that, but they still decided to stay in the sport. I always wonder about some of the folks in what I call like those gray area intensities. If like some people who fall off the wagon, if they had a different nutritional approach could maybe have kept things going or uh, maintained a career versus kind of get, get fall off. But you know, when you get to that level of Olympic sport, there's such a big, number of potential candidates that I think it probably is easy to like, yeah. you know, fall back a couple percent, be off the radar of anyone who is going to help you out. And then, you know, your career's over. And at that point, you know, a lot of those folks are looking for their next career, not necessarily like, you know, these big sports like football and basketball and, and baseball here in the States where, you know, you play a few years and you, you maybe have a pension that you can live on over the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think, um, I, I believe that there's probably more athletes than we realize 
who are on a low carb diet and or doing some form of lower carb diet, but they just don't talk about it because of sponsors. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to get a low carb sponsor because there's not many products around that will do that. And, you know, they're probably being paid a lot of money to, to, um, to endorse a higher carb product. But having said that, Sean, you did remind me that um, 2000, in the Rio Olympics, women's pair and Rebecca Scown, she was pretty low carb. She was on a low carb diet. And she got a silver medal in the women's pair. So there is an example of someone who has, has actually already got a medal at the Olympics who has been low carb in over a six minute event. So, For, Yeah, I know. And you're probably familiar with, uh, I mean, obviously the All Blacks, but I mean, Owen Franks uh, went on the carnivore diet, you know, two years ago and, and mm-hmm. played, I think his last two seasons, pretty much low carb, mostly carnivore. So I know he was mm-hmm. really low carb and then now he's... I think he's still pursuing professional career at the, with the uh, maybe it's the Crusaders or maybe he's up in, up in Europe now. Yeah. But he's he's done that, so obviously that is a, a very high profile athlete as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the, you know these these people do exist, but I just it, there's all these variations. You even talk about the Ineos cycling team, you know, and Chris Froome being on some form of low carb racing and training, and you know this kind of area. I don't you know this. Um, periodization of carbohydrate feeding you know it's talked about a lot and uh you know that, that the group out of canada that trent Stenoff, louise burke and and john hawley you know they're all um they all talk about you know they've talked about carb periodization for a long time but um but i think uh from my side i, I still think it's slightly they haven't got it right and i do believe in some form of carb periodization but the other way around in the you should be low carb and then periodize carbs around racing and maybe some high intense interval training sessions, not be high carb all the time and then reduce them at times when you are doing a specific sort of session. I think it's, that's not the optimal and the healthiest way to do things. So. Yeah, I think, I think that's exact. Pretty much. That's what you do. You kind of taper your cards in for higher performance uh, type, uh, type events. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely, I'll, ju- I'll adjust depending on what I'm doing a little bit, but like, yeah, like what you were saying, Dan, like I'm working from the other side of the same fence in the sense that when I do a, what I would consider a high carb day for me, you know, I might be pushing 20 ish, maybe 30% if I run a calorie deficit that day, where it gets interesting, I think is when we look at percentages of your intake, because for me, when I'm kind of in peak training and I'm starting to focus specifically on race type stuff. So, you know, I might do a 30 miler followed by a 30 miler on Saturday and Sunday. And I'll almost definitely run a calorie deficit during that like 30 hour window where I'm putting in those two training sessions. And if you look at just what I eat, you know, then I'm maybe 20 to 30% carbohydrate on some of those, those sessions. But then that next two days when I'm focusing primarily on rest and recovery, I might be, you know, zero to 50 grams of carbohydrate or like, you know, less than 5% of my intake and making up for some of that calorie deficit I ran those prior two workouts. Um, and some of that's just out of just, I think, sanity to some degree, because it's like when you're trying to feed yourself on back-to-back 30-mile days, it's just like you're, you're eating way past satiation at that point. And, mm. and if, if you can still get the workout done, then it's a little easier to kind of catch back up on that on the following yeah. day or days. Yeah, and, that, and that's, I mean, that's the way that I run is, you know, 
I, I will, especially around racing, I'll, you know, I'll take in the carbs big time and I'll take 50 grams, 50 grams per hour when I'm doing an Ironman or something like that. And even around, um, some of my higher intensity bike workouts or runs, I might take, I might take some S fuels race plus on that, in that type of session. Um, so I'm definitely more, I mean, and that's the kind of the way that I promote it is that you, you can periodize it in. And it's this, you know, I think there's this misconception that, if you're not in ketosis, you've lost all your fat adaptation, which is, you know, is, isn't true. But people think that, you know, oh my God, my ketones aren't high this morning. Have I, fall, have I lost all my fat adaptation? Whereas, you know, fat adaptation is still there. And I think we have to get like, I think there's this kind of area that's a bit confused behind what is fat adapted versus ketogenic. You can be fat adapted and not ketogenic. You don't have to be ketogenic to be fat adapted. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, let, let's jump into that a little bit because I, one of the number, it's gotta be one of the top questions I get when I do console calls is someone will come to me and they'll have been doing a fairly strict ketogenic diet, at least from the carbohydrate restriction side of things. And they'll be starting, they'll, you know, they'll listen to a podcast or something I did and they'll, they'll recognize that I do reintroduce some carbohydrates for performance. And that's the question they always have is like, well, if I have a gel or if I have a little bit of carbohydrate, is that going to ruin my my fat adaptation, or is that going to throw me out of burning fat in the race itself? And I think that just, it, it just takes a little bit of like, I think confidence on your side as, as the athlete or the performer to, to recognize what you just said. It's like, we're, we're looking to reduce the amount of carbohydrate you need to take in during the event. So you can avoid some of the massive digestive issues and the roller coaster ride you're going to get trying to put down 60 plus grams of, of yeah, glucose yeah. per hour. And, uh, you know, that's when, when they start looking at it kind of as a sliding scale versus like, I'm either burning fat or I'm burning carbohydrates. I think that's when it starts to kind of click in their mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like in our, in our, in our online course, we, that's what we go through in, in great detail. And you, you, you know, if you look at long distance events, some of them, the main problems are gastrointestinal distress and the, and also hitting the wall and bonking, right? It's a really funny, I read this paper that showed that that was in Ironman triathletes and it said, okay, what we see is that the people who had the most carbohydrates did the best on race day. That was one finding. And then the other side was say, the people who had the most carbohydrates were most likely to DNF. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> funny because they, they the, the position paper came out for uh, ultra marathon distance stuff and they were looking at just like, you know, what ultra marathoners are eating and kind of what is standard protocol more or less. And they came to the conclusion that the moderate carbohydrate intake was ideal, but they also reported that 60% of ultra marathon athletes report some form of digestive issue during their event. Mm. So it's like, it's kind of like that, that conflicting message, or it's like, yeah, this yeah. is what we'd like you to do on paper, but on the, in the field, it may not work 60% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's so frustrating because that's the other people think, you know, they hit the wall, they get a sore stomach. They don't, they don't think about reducing the carbohydrate intake or hitting the wall. The answer is to have, well, how can I get more carbohydrates? Can I mix fruit, fructose and maltodextrin to get myself more carbs down my, you know, down my throat? And, you know, why don't you just make life easier on yourself and increase your fat metabolism so you don't need mm -hmm. to take as much carbohydrates? And there's an interesting, so essentially, we actually were just looking at this data from me in the lab recently. Um, and... It were, and it was basically, we were looking at breath-by-breath breath analysis and looking at when I was taking in carbohydrates. And the only thing that 
happened is that when you take in carbohydrates, so you've got your endogenous stores, you've got your fat metabolism, you've got your exogenous source of carbohydrate, which is the carbohydrate you're taking in. And what happens is when you take in that exogenous stores of carbohydrate, yes, you do reduce your, um, your fat oxidation, but you burn the exogenous carbohydrates that you've just taken in. That's, then the endogenous stays the same. Your fat metabolism goes down. So then you've got this, you've got, you, rather than working over two things, you're working over three things. You've got exogenous, endogenous, and fat metabolism. Whereas if you don't take any exogenous, you've only got endogenous and your fat metabolism. So, you, you know, you're, any type of ultra event, it, the, the key is to preserve your endogenous carbohydrate stores as best you possibly can. And to do that, having exogenous carbohydrates makes perfect sense. We wrote a paper in um, the Journal of Sports Medicine and you know, anyone who's competing at any sort of speed will, will be tapping into some um, carbohydrate metabolism. You know, you know, someone like you, Zach, will definitely have some carbohydrate metabolism going on during your, during your ultra, ultra races because just for the fact that you're running so fast, you know, your overall calorie expenditure per mile is, I'm sorry, per minute is much higher. So you will need, um, so you will need more carbohydrate. You will need some carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, that that's always been the interesting thing to me is like, where, what, what is that line in terms of how much you should be bringing in? And it, I was, I, you piqued my interest when you said you target 50 grams. Cause when I, when I broke the hundred mile and 12 hour world records last August, I was hitting I think it was about 40, if I remember right, 40 grams per hour. And I maybe had a couple, a couple hours that flexed up close to 50, but it was right in that kind of neighborhood. Did, did you come to 50 grams through experience for yourself? Just knowing like that's kind of your limit from a digestive standpoint as well as enough or did you, how did you come to that? So, so I, I, I mean, I've got, I've got, I do have guts of steel. I have to say I'm pretty fortunate in that regard. I mean, you could give me a three course meal in the middle of a marathon and I could probably, <laughs> You know, just eat it and then carry on running. But um, the reason I came to 50 grams more is because we know like the oxidation rates of pure maltodextrin is 60 grams per hour. Um, so I thought, right, well, I'm going to be safe. I don't, I don't really need, and I kind of did the maths at what I knew my fat metabolism was. So it's about 1.3 to 1.4 grams per minute. And I kind of knew the pace of running it and kind of did the maths of what I would need. And, um, and I thought, you know, 50 grams is pretty safe. And also... It's actually less than 50 grams in the, for the duration of the Ironman because what I would do is you do the swim. It's pretty difficult to eat whilst you're swimming, obviously. Um, but then during the bike, I would be 50 grams per hour. Um, but then during the run, I would not take – I'd just take what I can at the aid stations, really. I'd had no specific feeding routine. And so in, in Kona, for example, I, I ran the – when I won the age group, I had the fourth fastest marathon of the entire day, including the pros. And I had like two gels on the entire run. So that's like 60 grams of carbs over two hours, 50 minutes. So, um, yeah, so I think, so overall it's probably, it's less than 50 grams per hour. Yeah. And, and you reminded me, we did, we, we usually do it at the beginning of the podcast, but we didn't really introduce you properly in terms of what you've done athletically as well. And, um, so yeah, why don't you share just a bit about kind of where you're at with, with triathlon, just from a competitive standpoint. Yeah, well, I'm, I guess I, I, I race, um, I race age group. I don't race professionally. I coach some professionals. Um, but yeah, in 2018, I won the um, Kona amateur race, broke the amateur course record. There came 22nd overall. So in 2019, took a bit of a hiatus. We had um, a big year. We had a second little, um, little boy born. So we've now got a two-year-old and a 
seven month year old, but now I've kind of getting back into it. And we were supposed to be racing the world half Ironman champs that's here in New Zealand in November. So you know, that's where I'm at at the moment for the time being, at least focusing on work and um, focusing on work and um, family. So just sticking with the half distance rather than the full Ironman, even though the heart, the full Ironman definitely suits me more for sure. The longer, the better really, but yeah. I was on mute. <laughs> where, um, where do people find out more uh, from you know about you? Where can they go to, to? I mean, are you on social media and that sort of stuff, or how do you? Yeah, how do yeah. you get? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I guess first we've got our my, my website where we have a lot of the things that we talked about today. We've got a lot of blogs, which is endureiq.com, and then pretty active on um, social media, mostly Instagram at the moment, which is um, at the Plues. And then also at Twitter as well, which is at the Plues as well. So the same handle. Awesome. Well, Dan, it's been great to have you on and share some of your insights as well as kind of what you're doing uh, professionally and athletically. Uh, and we'll definitely have to have you back on the show to dive into some more of this stuff. And uh, we'll, we'll tag all that stuff in the show notes, folks. So if you want to check out what Dan is up to, feel free to head to the show notes and click over to his social media stuff. Awesome. No, thanks for having me on, guys. Pleasure to meet you both. Yeah, keep up the great work. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, the New Zealand kayak team does and you know, if yeah, the yeah. Olympics, whenever they occur. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess they're still good. I mean, I'm sure there'll still be a Tokyo and uh, maybe, maybe what, October or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, they'll be still, they'll, it, they'll, it'll still happen. I think it's just the question of when. So we will yeah. see. Yeah. yeah, interesting, exciting. Do you get to go? Would you think you'll get to travel over there when you're. Uh, no, I went to I went with rowing to the Olympics. I went to London and Rio, but I can't, you know, so the way the accreditation works is that you get um, so for every athlete you get an an, accredit, an extra accredited person. But that's quite easy in rowing because you have men's eight, so you have got eight people. Women's eight, you got sixteen people. Um, you got the coxes, you know. So there's a lot of people, so it's easy to go. But whereas kayak, it's smaller boats, less fewer people. So the you know, it's really just the coaches and the physio who get to go to that one. So yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dan. Well, enjoy thanks, your mate. evening. Yeah. I know. I, 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 no, it's morning there. That's morning. Right. Morning. Yeah, enjoy I, I, that. I yeah. Remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, I get back. I'd love to get back then in New Zealand. I know Zach was there last year or earlier. Next year, here you were there about a month ago, weren't you, Zach? Yeah, I was actually there in early February, yeah. and then about a little over a year before that, my wife and I honeymooned out in in New Zealand. So yeah, I was last there in 1992. So I gotta I gotta go. So I'm sure the oh, wife ne- next time next time you come out, you let me know. Well, yeah. Where are you, where are you located? Yeah. I'd to ask what part of New Zealand are you in? I'm in Auckland. I'm on the North Shore. In Auckland. Okay. Yeah, sure. North Island. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I lived in, uh, like I said, I lived in Waikato and Cambridge and, uh, yeah. you know, just kind of played rugby in that area, but I never really left that major area. I never got to the South Island. And so I've got to go make, uh, make a proper tour of New Zealand. Yeah. My, um, my parents, so my parents have a home in England, but they also have a house in Cambridge. Yeah. So okay. they, do, they do six months, six months. So oh, cool. They're in Cambridge at the moment. Cambridge, New Zealand. But, yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a yeah. So they live in Yorkshire. They live in Yorkshire, England, but they have a house in Cambridge, New Zealand. So, um, so they do like six months, six months. So. And you're originally from England, then? Is that right? Yeah, or? from Yorkshire. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. But you've picked up some of the accent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. it's funny because people, um, like people <laughs> from New Zealand, still think I sound English, but no one else does. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, what's your next plan in terms of? Well, you, you got any race um, challenges planned or 
any because I, he- I heard rumors of an indoor thing yeah yeah so we're uh i'm actually working pretty closely with Leighton right now we're gonna do a 12-hour treadmill going on i'm actually talking with uh i fit nordic track as well they're gonna it's funny because like i think people think like oh yeah you know these treadmills at the gym that are running all day are the same ones you have at your house and you know i'm talking to these folks at nordic track like it's not always the case. So we might need to get, get you something that's going to guarantee to last for 12 hours without having yeah, to stop yeah. it. I've got, I've got this and this is a live fitness. That's pretty good. Okay. So yeah. the, the reason I ask is because I reckon I could get you a sweet hookup with Zwift. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. If you're interested, I reckon if I talked to them and said, you're, you're interested in doing this record and you did the record in Zwift, so uh-huh. they would buy you and send you a treadmill, I reckon. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. We're... Uh, well, we can, we can, we can chat about that if you want. It's yeah. going to be a little tight cause we're targeting, uh, mid May. Uh, but you never know. So what, well, I've got, I've got the connections. I could send the email out today, but I reckon like, you know, Zwift make, well, they were making $15 million a month. So, and that's probably doubled since, um, um yeah, COVID-19. COVID, yeah. 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 Sure. So, <laughs> so they, it's not like that. Um, and they're looking for cool things to do and, you know, they could put it online and have mm-hmm. you running. People could come and run with you in the, in the Zwift world. And, um, so I, I wrote some programs for their Academy. So I have a, I know them all. Um, oh, okay, cool. I know, they, I know that they, they would. I'm just curious about the treadmill. I mean, how do they sure how they how do they know that they're calibrated appropriately? And you know, is one treadmill the same as another? You know, how does that work? Yeah, that's where it gets interesting. So if you look at like all the records for treadmills, they have like verified and unverified. So essentially, if you want it verified, you have to have someone come in and calibrate it for you, and then sign off saying this is uh, properly going to calculate your your time and distance. So um, is it easier be- or harder on a treadmill? Uh, that's a good question. I'll, I'll have to report back. <laughs> I, I mean, I do, I do a lot of my running on treadmills and I reckon it's easier. Yeah. My, my thought is like the furthest I've gone on a treadmill is I think about 30 miles. Mm. So I'll be going well past that. But my general thought is kind of once you kind of acclimate to just being like the whole like spatial awareness stuff, mm. it almost has to be easier because you have no wind resistance, complete climate control. You can, rather than trying to like, burn mental energy paying attention to pace you just kind of set it and go yeah yeah but, i love i love it for that reason because i just like set it at a pace and then just you go for it do you have to have it at a percent or can you have it at zero percent i think it's supposed to be 0.1 or something like yeah, that. yeah most well most people so if you look at the research it's like they reckon one percent is the equivalent of running outside i always run at one and a half percent because i think it's a bit more mm-hmm. more real like one and a half percent um but yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting one. I, I use my, um, so I calibrate my treadmill, but I, I get my bike with a speedo on the wheel and I put mm-hmm. it on the treadmill and I see what my speedo of my bike's saying because that's pretty accurate because it's a set wheel that's going around. Mm-hmm. And then I adjust it like that. I, I can come and calibrate your treadmill for you. There you go. Yeah, I'm we'll to bring you in from Auckland. <laughs> so... Yeah, so but it's quite handy because I know that mine's point two slow, so I always just put it point two faster than what it's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you? I mean, are you allowed? To, I mean, in your in your normal races, Zach, can you put music on? Do you put a headphone on with music on, or or is that? I mean, on the track, I could see that maybe the trail might not be the smartest thing, but uh, yeah, treadmill, I guess you could. And I don't know if that is that a negative or a positive? You think? Yeah, it, I think it's definitely a positive from from my standpoint anyway. So it really just comes down to the event. Some events say you can't. Usually if it's like USATF um, or even like uh, 
just like an international race that is geared towards world championships, they won't let you, but they do make an exception for, I think the 24 hour, they just said it's like inhumane to make you just <laughs> go out there on a short <laughs> loop 24 hours without access to any music. If you have it. So, uh, did, did you really have music expensive. when you set that hundred miler up in Minnesota, Wisconsin, wherever it was? In Wisconsin. Was? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That one, they were fine with it. So a lot of times it comes down to the race director. <laughs> if it's not like a USATF sanctioned event, uh, so a lot of, I would say most allow it. The, I'm trying to think there's a couple races, JFK 50 mile that I did last fall. They say no, um, all world championship hundred K's have always said no. And, but most, most of the trail ultras, they'll let you, but they'll, unless the RD doesn't like it, in which case they'll say no. But a lot of times they'll just say, leave one ear open or, you know, get a model of headphones that are like after, I think aftershocks, they make one where it's like, it goes up to your, like, uh, it, it connects to like your the top of your head it's not actually in your ear oh yeah yeah and mm. my one of so one of the um grinders who's a uh he's in the sas mm-hmm. he uses those yeah, I use yeah. In the sas so you can listen to the ops but you can also hear everything that's going on around you mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah so i would say most races let you do it a few don't i wonder um, you, i mean you may know that uh, is there is there is there research showing whether music is ergogenic or or doesn't help depending on i know there's i know there's different levels of arousal for different events and some events you want high levels of arousal mm-hmm. and some you don't what's what does there is there re, maybe you know the research on that i'm not i'm not i'm not i don't know of any specific research i think i've heard that there is research out there that does show show that, that music does help i think yeah i, mean, I know that the uh, motivation right on arousal i don't know um what speed do you have to run at what's the, what is the record zach the record's 94 and a half miles for 12 hours. Uh, so I think, um, I think 94 and a half miles. Yeah. So for, right, for 12 hours. Just... Well, tell but, me, I mean, uh, Zach, what's your, I mean, your world record for 12 hours is a hundred and what already? 104.8. So I think you should crush that. Yeah. I think on a treadmill, I mean, it's, it's a little goofy cause I'm probably not ideally peaked for it, but I think I'm fit enough where, you know, uh, 12 hour, hundred mile is so what, what marathons is that? Is that like, what's that? That's like two fifty fives. Is it? Yeah, it's right in that neighborhood. Um, I'm trying to think, I think it was, what did they calculate it? They, you know, it was funny when I broke the world record, they in order to make it like kind of a digestible for folks who are paying attention to endurance, but not ultra endurance. That's how they kind of describe it. It was like X number of five K's at this pace, X number of marathons yeah, at that yeah. pace. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that's when people yeah, can yeah. kind of start wrapping their head around it. But yeah, well, that's how, yeah, even me, I mean, I, I've no idea how, I mean, I would have to, I have to think of it like that too, mm-hmm. really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I'll probably, I'll, my, my goal will start, I'll start out maybe a little conservative and then ratchet down if I'm feeling pretty good. And I think that's a, that's a generally a decent plan for me right now anyway, because when I did the, the world records last August, I split 540 for the first 50 miles and then 538 for the second. So I was ripping in like mid to low sixes at the back end of that race. So it was like, yeah, that was the best I felt at the end of a race for a hundred miles anyway. Mid to low. So seven minute miles is three hour marathon, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's right in there. I think like, what is it? Six, I think 658 is a 302 if I'm not mistaken. Right. Okay. So it's okay. right around there. I, were, I'm, I, I used to work in miles when I lived in England, but my brain has since yeah. gone all the way into kilometers. <laughs> Re- now I do some like miles, and then I think back, it's yeah. 1.6. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I rode for an hour the other day. as the longest I think I've been on the rowing machine. I was like, I got no desire for 12 hours. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, oh. 
That's a lot. Rowing machines are brutal, though. Yeah. 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 So I'll give you um I'll give you a one I'll give you a stat for a row machine stat. So when I was at rowing, um, Eric Murray he did four two Ks with four minutes recovery, all in under six minutes. Wow, that's yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah, that's I mean, well, I saw him do. I think I saw him do an hour row. Where I mean, it was on on it was like an hour record, and he his heart rate was consistently two hundred for the entire hour or something. Like yeah, that. yeah. Wow. Well, I was I, I'm actually if you if you saw that on YouTube, I'm in that yeah. video. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's pretty. I, pretty I helped him with all those. I did helped him with all those that five k record, and I was there for all those. Those so, yeah, he was a specimen on the erg. Geez, far yeah. out. Yeah, but Mahe never really did any erging, so so he never really saw. But but um, especially after they won, so when they won um, London, they were with Dick Tonks, and they did a lot of, on the water, and he was a bit of a drill sergeant. But when they went to Rio, they did things a bit differently. So they split up a lot, and Eric did a lot more on the erg and. We did some real meaty sessions. It was quite, quite good. So, yeah. yeah that's anyway, a, that's a that's a torture device. Anyway, it can be. <laughs> yeah. So, I'll, do you want me to send you an intro? Do you want me to intro you to the guys at Zwift, Zach? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It can't hurt. Yeah. Okay. We'll see what. I mean, I think they'll be. I think they'll jump at it personally. I mean, I don't know what know why they wouldn't. I mean, and then the cool thing is you can get people running with you in Whiteopia. I'll come and do it. I'll come and do yeah. something with you. Uh-huh. Yeah, Leighton was talking about that. We're, we're working with, I think, uh, Zoom at the moment about finding a way to have people to join in, like at the at every hour, come in and have like yeah, you have little people. rabbits, all the little rabbits yeah, yeah. running with you. Yeah, yeah but in in what in white in 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 um, so I could I could jump on my treadmill here, uh-huh. and if you're my, I can run with you in Whiteopia, and we'd both be on the screen at the same time, and oh, your okay. little, so your little avatar will be running next to my avatar, and I'd run it. You know, you'd have people doing it with you. Yeah. Nice. Well, that, that, that sounds exciting. I think we'll it'll be really cool. That. I'll come in there and run a hundred meters with you, Zach. Yeah. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, it's been awesome. Thanks guys. Uh, yeah, thanks guys. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.